You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight's going to be a great show. I've got a really incredible guest who's been kind enough to take some of his time and sit down with us and talk to us about a few topics, one of which is going to be ranavirus. And then we're going to get into a few other things. Uh, we're going to talk about Kittred a little bit, and we're also going to talk about uh, some attitudes towards legislation and establishing a, a cleaner trade that will hopefully result in a substantial reduction in the uh, transmission of pathogens. And it's really in the trade. That's what people want. So I would like to, uh, without further ado, introduce my guest, Dr. Matt Gray. Uh, Dr. Gray, how are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. And again, I, I want to thank you again for uh, doing the show. As all you guys know, we do talk a little bit off air beforehand, and uh, um, I think we've got a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. So um, why don't we start with some introductions first? Um, Matt, why don't you start at the beginning? Why don't you tell us your story what were some of your earliest experiences with amphibians like, and what led you to study amphibian diseases? Yeah, um, I guess my first exposure to amphibians was I, I grew up in the country, and uh, up in Michigan, uh, we had uh, creeks behind our house, we had some ponds, and I just remember being really uh, interested and excited uh, walking along those water systems and seeing these, you know, um, animals jump into the water. And, and as I got a little bit older and had greater awareness, I realized um, these things started in the water. They started as eggs, and then they went through this process of metamorphosis and became land creatures. And one of my biology teachers um, at a young age actually had a, um, a terrarium, where she had bullfrog tadpoles, and we watched them um, go through the whole process of metamorphosis, and that 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 really was you know the hook there, and um, you know I became extremely interested in biology um, and amphibians, and um, again that that influence at that young age of both kind of growing up in 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 nature, and and also uh, some influential teachers, you know when I was you know, in K through 12, um, that really, um, you know, helped steer my interest in the biology field. Um, I did my bachelor's degree at uh, Michigan State, and uh, from there I went down to Mississippi State University, and then I spent a little bit of time in Puerto Rico, and then went over to Texas Tech uh, to do my Ph.D., um, I, prior to Texas Tech, I studied really all aspects of wetland systems and I studied birds and, and other animals and, and amphibians was just a component of it. But when I went to Texas Tech, I was super interested in these wetlands out there called the Playa wetlands um, on the Southern High Plains of Texas. And there are thousands of these wetlands out there. And, um, really millions and millions of amphibians um, are around these wetlands. It's actually very dry out in that part of the country. And amphibians live underground. And when they get these really big kind of almost monsoonal uh, thunderstorms during the summer, they emerge from the, the ground and, and then they go down to these wetlands that are often dry until they get these big rains and they all come down and they explosively breed and 
you can literally have thousands and upon thousands of animals in, in, in these wetlands. And so um, for my PhD, I was really interested in um, trying to understand um, what uh, different landscape uses might influence the types of amphibians that were in these, these wetlands. And, uh, you know, one of the things I looked at there was how land use, you know, how humans use the landscape um, and how that might influence the number of amphibians that are there, the, the number of species, the, the actual biomass of amphibians, and, and, and even their health. And um, one finding that um, we had was that we noticed that uh, parasite levels just underneath the skin, uh, it's a parasite called a trematode, that um, the prevalence or the occurrence of that trematode was more common in these in wetlands that were surrounded that had cattle access to them. And uh, that was really neat. Um, we uh, that was really my first kind of exposure to, um, you know, how land use could potentially affect um, not just numbers of animals, but but even their health. You know, even the the the, the host parasite interaction. And um, after Texas Tech, I secured the position here at University of Tennessee. And one of the first projects I did was to look at uh, was to do health assessments and kind of look at population dynamics um, within uh, wetlands that uh, had cattle access and that did not have cattle access and in Tennessee um, if y'all haven't been to Tennessee uh, we are at least from Nashville to the east we are primarily a um, a beef cattle state uh, where you know where we have agriculture as you get farther to West Tennessee than we do have some row crop agriculture. So that's where we are located in Knoxville is, is in Eastern Tennessee. That's our primary, other than forest um, and streams, uh, our primary um, land use is, 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 is livestock. So uh, that was one of the first things I looked at. And um, we, um, again, we did, we did health assessments. This was a collaboration with the University of Georgia and I was working with their veterinarians there, and, and uh, one of the first things that came that we discovered that really came out and, and actually uh, had a difference between cattle access ponds and non-access ponds was this thing called rontavirus. And uh, really prior to this discovery, um, I had not read much about rontavirus. I, I, I knew of it, but really didn't know too much about it. And so that was... Um, about 17, 15, 17 years ago when we made that discovery. And uh, we found that um, ronavirus and, and the particular species of ronavirus, it's frog virus 3, was um, actually in the wetlands, um, but it had much higher currents, much higher prevalence in the Cadillacs' wetlands. And um, we... Uh, um, don't know exactly what was driving that trend, but we sort of uh, hypothesized that um, we did document that the water quality was lower where um, cattle have access to those wetlands um, and that there was less vegetation. So, you know, um, just like with COVID and we do, you know, social distancing and things like that, um, you know, um, 
Ronavirus is a virus and it can transmit very easily, especially when you're in close contact. So amphibians, uh, you know, they hide in vegetation. Vegetation helps them spatially separate. And when you reduce that, they tend to cluster more. And so um, there may be, have been two mechanisms for that increase in prevalence where there were cattle because the amphibians tended to cluster more to each, with each other and the water quality tended to be not as good. So they may have been stressed a little bit. So that was a really um, kind of neat discovery in general um, uh, as far as um, host pathogen interactions and land use, but but that really opened my eyes to, to ronavirus. So I started to, um, at that point, really get into the literature. And I found out that really um, there had not been a lot of work done um, from an ecology side uh, on ronaviruses, um, with the exception of, of quite a bit of work that had been done at Arizona State University with Dr. Jim Collins and uh, several of his graduate students, of, of which now um, um, I'm colleagues with several of those and, and we're friends and we, we've done collaborative projects together, et cetera. So that really kind of started my world into ronaviruses. Um, it wasn't long after that that we started. We did a bunch of kind of surveillance projects, so going out and looking where ronavirus was in Tennessee and in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and we started to do some controlled experiments. So, you know, one way um, as ecologists that we try to figure out what's going on um, in the real world is we'll try to bring the real world into the laboratory and try to change different conditions from an experimental standpoint to see what influences um, transmission or infection rates or the health of the animals. And so uh, that really kind of opened an area of my research where we really began to look at mechanisms responsible for ronavirus outbreaks. And, um, you know, ronavirus outbreaks are, 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 are fairly common actually in North America, not too far from here, I'm not sure. If your listeners have been to um, the Great Smoky Mountain National Park and have gone through around the Cades Cove Loop, um, we have had reoccurring die-offs of some in some of the wetlands uh, just near Cades Cove, where you have total catastrophic loss of animals. Um, but it's not just unique here to Tennessee. Uh, there's been uh, die-offs. There are die-offs occurring quite frequently in many, many states um, every single year. Um, but that's really my introduction into ronaviruses. Um, we, we, not too far after I got involved in it, um, I realized there was a really uh, kind of a big need to organize biologists and veterinarians and microbiologists and mathematicians that were interested in ronaviruses and other pathogens. Um, and a group of us uh, had a symposium. Um, it was up in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, and uh, we decided to form um, an organization, a nonprofit organization called the Global Ronavirus Consortium, um, which still exists today. And we've had, uh, um, so we've been going on now for over a decade. And uh, that's an organization um, you can search ronavirus.org and, and, and find that organization. 
and it's just again it's a group of scientists and other professionals biologists etc that 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 are interested in collaborating together to understand more about ronaviruses so that kind of started my career in ronaviruses um from um really the interest starting in texas realizing you know the importance of pathogens to some of the uh, early discoveries we had here in tennessee i'd like to just sort of pick apart ranavirus in terms of w- what it is why don't we start with i guess if you could give us a description of, of what ranavirus is and uh, i mean tell us what is it where did it come from what does it do what's its method of operation and why don't we go from there sure sure absolutely so Y'all have heard of SARS-CoV-2, so that's the pathogen that's um, associated with COVID. That's an RNA virus. It's really, really small um, as far as, um, you know, what are called base pairs. Um, it's, it's a small, small virus. Ronavirus is a double-stranded DNA virus. It's actually very big. Um, it's only like three times smaller than uh, a bacteria, bacterium. Um, and it has really high environmental persistence. It actually has like this, this, um, sort of, uh, almost membrane that goes around, um, the, the, the viral particle that helps protect it. Um, and ronaviruses, uh, can be transmitted very easily. Uh, first of all, they, um, this is a pathogen that can infect, uh, not only frogs and salamanders, um, but also reptiles and fish. So it has a tremendously wide, very broad um, um, host range. So when you have that many hosts that can exist within an ecosystem, um, it's really easy for the pathogen to stay within hosts um, and, and stick around in the environment. Um, not all hosts are equally susceptible. Uh, even within amphibian species, we have some that are super susceptible. So the most widely distributed amphibian species in North America is the wood frog. It has a distribution that goes from uh, northern Georgia all the way to Alaska. It is, without a question, the most susceptible species of that exists in North America to rotavirus, super, super susceptible, can be exposed just to, you know, uh, you know, a few hundred little virus particles and it can, it'll, it'll, it'll kill um, uh, wood frogs. So we have that end to the other end where uh, we have species that can live with the pathogen. Bullfrogs can be infected, for example, and be fine with it. Uh, in some cases, they will develop the disease too, especially if they get really, really stressed. So we have these communities of amphibians um, and reptiles, and sometimes there's fish also associated with those in aquatic systems that can keep around the pathogen. Uh, And then it can, what we would say, spill over or cause transmission events to another species. And those really highly susceptible species, like, for example, the wood frog, are the ones that, um, you know, you hear of with COVID, super spreader events. Well, uh, what we uh, refer to that in ecology and we refer to it across species, we call them amplifying events. So 
you can have a particular species that can amplify the pathogen um, within a community because it's super susceptible. So it's shedding just tons and tons of virus. Um, or because of its behavior, maybe it's contacting a lot, a lot of different hosts, hosts whereas other species might be more sedentary and, and not contact other hosts. So you have these individuals that kind of keep it around, and then you have, um, or species that keep it around, and then you have these amplifiers that really increase its um, concentration um, within the environment. And so, um, you know, coronavirus, uh, as far as, you know, kind of operating within a community of amphibians, um, the in general, across amphibians, uh, the tadpole stage, so the larval stage, is the most susceptible, um, and adults tend to have lower susceptibility. So even within a species, the adults might keep it around and then shed it to their babies, <laughs> and then they amplify it. You can have all the tadpoles die. And uh, it may, again, spill over to less susceptible species that kind of keep it around. So the, the thing is about ronavirus is that um, it's very easily transmi uh, transmitted. So it just from contact to contact, just one second of contact, one contact can be sufficient to allow ronavirus to transmit from a uh, infected individual to a susceptible. And, and when I mean contact, I mean direct physical contact, like two tadpoles bumping into each other. But again, they also shed the pathogen. Um, so they'll, they'll shed it in their waste, et cetera. It actually can shed right off of their skin. Um, and that gets in the environment and those, you know, Virus particles will float around in the water. So if you have contaminated water or contaminated sediment, um, that can result in a transmission event. And um, again, if these transmission events and these die-offs kind of occur year after year, it can have pretty significant population impact. So um, we've done a little bit of research uh, that and, and worked with some modelers, some mathematicians that have demonstrated uh, for example, in like a wood frog population, that it can only take about five years where you have these outbreaks of ronavirus and you can see the adult population totally collapse. And um, so it can have some pretty significant uh, effects on populations. Is ronavirus, how do I, how do I put this? We often tend to think about diseases as just sort of coming from from nowhere. I mean, COVID was a kind of a unique situation here, but how long has ranavirus been detected in wild populations of frogs that we've been aware of? Yeah, so that's a great question. So, ranaviruses were first uh, discovered uh, back in the 1960s, um, and they were just uh, it, it was just by coincidence. Um, there were actually some medical doctors that um, were studying um, a disease that affects humans, and they wanted to get uh, some cell cultures going that where they could grow this uh, uh, grow this virus that that was affecting humans. And so, a lot of times, what um, you know, uh, microbiologists do is they'll try to get 
cells of other animals and kind of grow the pathogen in there. And so they were getting a bunch of frogs and in the process of, of trying to culture the cells to, to do some experiments uh, with this um, human pathogen, um, they found, they found uh, this other virus called ronavirus. And at that time, it, they went through the process and they described it, et cetera. But at that time, there was really no kind of awareness of negative impacts on amphibians. It, it really wasn't until um, the late, uh, mid to late 80s that, um, that uh, really two different groups started to recognize uh, amphibians having negative impacts by ronaviruses. One group was the group I mentioned earlier out of Arizona State University. They were studying um, Sonoran tiger salamanders in Arizona. Uh, which is a species of concern and, and they're, that are declining, and, and they were noticing these die-offs happening. Um, and it took them a few years to diagnose, but they finally did that, oh my gosh, ronavirus was causing these die-offs. Another group is out of, um, out of the UK, out of England, and uh, in England they have, uh, you know, um, a, it's very common for people to have these garden ponds. So, you know, these are kind of manufactured ponds, kind of koi ponds or, or even more elaborate in their backyards and frogs colonize them. And, you know, citizens were reporting, you know, to um, the wildlife health experts there that, hey, you know, my frogs are dying. <laughs> and, um, again, it took them a few years to figure out why they were dying, but lo and behold, it was coronavirus. And those discoveries were really kind of happening, you know, at the same time. So it was really mid-1990s, we really started to recognize that ronaviruses um, uh, could cause negative impacts on amphibian populations. So that's when we discovered it. Um, and so ronaviruses have, have certainly been a lot around um, for a while, just like coronaviruses have. But, you know, they're role in, um, you know, impacts on population uh, declines uh, have, without a question, been increasing. And so there are a couple different reasons for that. Um, one is, uh, which is true with many wildlife pathogens, is that um, we as humans are moving pathogens around the globe. It could be as simple as for example, the pathogen that causes white-nose syndrome that is killing bats through North America is, again, believed to be from Europe and was believed to be introduced on, um, you know, the on contaminated boots of a hiker that was hiking in Europe and then hiked through some caves up in New York. So we can carry pathogens around, um, like coronavirus, on our boots when we go through the water, and it can stick around for, for several days on, on your your boots or your fishing equipment, et cetera. But we also move amphibians um, or wildlife in general uh, around uh, the globe through trade. So the wildlife trade is a, a pretty big industry. Um, and uh, right now, the, 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 at least in the United States, um, the regulation of, of wildlife trade is, um, well, uh, wildlife do not need to have uh, be demonstrated to be negative for for pathogens. 
so they can move across the globe and um, with without any awareness of whether an animal is infected or not. And so that global movement of animals, uh, global movement of amphibians certainly has resulted in movement of pathogens from areas where um, amphibians haven't necessarily co-evolved with them. So things coming from, for example, here in the United States, things coming maybe from Southeast Asia or from Europe being introduced in the United States and vice versa, things from the United States being introduced in other countries. And, um, you know, those amphibians uh, that are, are could be suitable hosts for, for our pathogens, uh, they're similar enough, but they haven't co-evolved their immune systems to... Um, you know, really recognize and and be able to respond to the virus, uh, unlike the the uh, the the species from where the native range of the pathogen is. And 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 rhinoviruses are pretty diverse. There's six different species of rhinovirus, and of those um, of those species, there's lots of different strains. And we've even documented that even different species can um, do what's called genetic recombination. So you can imagine, well, for example, you can have a frog, let's say, that is from um, Europe and it's infected with a species of rhinovirus there. And then you can have a frog from North America that's infected with its native species. And then through trade, these two animals interact. And um, the one that's infected with for example, the North American type is just fine. It's it's infected. It's not sick, and then it gets infected with this other kind of of rhinovirus, and then those uh, two viruses interact and they create something new. Um, we call that a recombinant uh, or a chimeric um, a strain of virus. And and I'm not just making this up. We have documented this occurring. Um, here in the United States. And so, um, unfortunately, things like that that happened, uh, when this happened, it was um, a, uh, a site that was in uh, Georgia, and we documented this new hybrid rhinovirus that uh, was created that was twice as virulent, um, had greater uh, had, had had double the mortality rate of our native rhinovirus. So, um, you know, that's kind of how, again, um, you know, things that are novel, uh, even like coronavirus that we're dealing with, can sometimes happen is that you can get different strains that interact that create something that's, you know, super um, virulent, or it can all of a sudden infect new types of hosts, new species of hosts, etc. That's wild. I never would have, I mean, I'm not by no means uh, a virus expert, but I never would have thought that they could essentially, I mean, it's probably not the appropriate term, but hybridize. That's right. That's right. That's wild. How would we recognize ranavirus? How would you, what are some of the symptoms and how would you go about detecting it? Yeah, so uh, ranavirus is what's called a hemorrhagic disease. Um, so it's very similar to, um, the Ebola virus. Okay. And so it's been called the Ebola of ectothermic vertebrates, meaning the Ebola of, you know, amphibians, uh, fish and reptiles. 
And it can look a little bit different in each of those groups, but with amphibians, um, you can also often see that hemorrhaging right beneath the skin of, of an amphibian, of, for example, a tadpole, or, or sometimes with adults, you'll see hemorrhaging underneath of the skin. You might see it around the eyes. Um, you can also see it on the, you know, with, with tadpoles, you can see it along the tail sometimes, the underbelly. Um, and so if you see any sort of hemorrhaging, any redness, that could be a sign of rhinovirus. It doesn't mean that it is, but that would be one sign. Um, another sign that you often see, and I, when I say sign, that means the same thing as symptom for humans. So usually with wildlife, we talk about disease signs and, and symptoms are with, with, with humans. But the, um, the other sign that you often see is uh, lots of swelling, and that is really a, uh, an inflammatory response. It's an immune response trying to flood the system and trying to get rid of the virus. So you can see them, um, uh, you, can, you can often see like tadpoles really looking bloated. Um, that can be a, a, a sign. And in general, when, they, when animals get really sick, they get slow, they get lethargic, they stop eating, um, et cetera, and, and they die. Um, rhinoviruses can really, uh, with susceptible hosts, uh, really attack the host very quick. Uh, so, you know, it's just to kind of, you know, give you a, a little bit of a, uh, of a scenario. It, it's kind of like, um, let's say you were a wood frog and, um, you know, you went to work on Monday and you got exposed to coronavirus. You know, literally by Tuesday, um, you're already running a fever. You're, 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 you're sick. By Wednesday, you're, you're not wanting to talk to anybody. You're, you're in bed. By Thursday and Friday, you're getting swelling. You're starting to bleed from your eyeballs. And by Sunday, you're dead. Okay, so that might seem really horrific to think about that, but that's how quick amphibians can die from ronavirus. Um, so uh, as, as maybe your listeners know, viruses can replicate super, super fast. So I, I mentioned before that it only takes one second of contact time uh, to, to basically result in transmission. What we also know is that following that transmission event, um, it only takes about three hours to, to actually document or to see the virus replicating within the cells of the amphibian. And, and for ronaviruses, that is internal organs. Um, yes, it, it, can, it, it, it can also replicate within the skin cells, but um, it will replicate uh, within uh, the liver, within the kidneys, within the spleen, within the heart, within the brain. Um, and so what happens is as it's the, the, the virus enters a cell, it takes over all of the cell's functions and begins replicating its own DNA. And in the process of doing that, it starts to release new virus particles out of the cell. The cell begins to die. And it dies usually within about six to nine hours after the virus enters the cell. Okay. So again, three hours after exposure, and then let's just say nine hours, you have dead cells. So that's 12 hours total after exposure, your cells are dying. 
okay, with, or the cells within the amphibian are dying. All right. In that amount of time, you know, thousands of viral particles are produced to go on to infect other cells. And so what you have happen within infected amphibians is this rapid progression of cell death that occurs in multiple organs. So um, that's not a good thing. Uh, when your liver and your kidneys are not functioning, um, if your brain gets infected and stops and, and, and starts to, to not function, those are bad things. And so um, what uh, ultimately happens is that you could die from lots of different things when you have all of these different organs um, reduced, uh, having their function be reduced. The other thing that um, ronavirus does is it infects uh, what are called the epithelial cells of your blood vessels or, or of the frog's blood vessels or the tadpole's blood vessels, and it kills the cells along the blood vessels. So that's why you see the hemorrhaging because as those blood vessels are becoming, are dying, you're getting basically little leaks of blood coming through the blood vessels. And so blood is leaking out and that's why you're seeing the hemorrhaging. So it's a, you know, you know, all pathogens have a really kind of way to kind of, you know, transmit and, and, and ultimately can kill a host. Um, Ronaviruses are not a, a fun pathogen. It's certainly not something that we, if we could, you know, be infected as humans, you know, that, that we would want, okay? It really can tear through an amphibian pretty quickly. Um, and uh, they, if they have it, they, you know, um, uh, die the not, most, not a most pleasant death, unfortunately. Yeah, the, the hemorrhagic diseases are particularly, <laughs> very particularly, un, very unpleasant. I, I'm yes, absolutely. It's interesting because when you think about some of these diseases, like you, you'd mentioned Ebola, I think that one of the, the saving graces of Ebola was that because it was so lethal, and given the area of the world that it was generally confined to, it, it was its spread was limited because before anyone who was infected with Ebola was able to get out of that range and come into contact with another population, they probably would have would have passed away. That's right. And, and, and also with Ebola, you have to have really close contact, intimate contact with the infected person or the infected host. Um, so it, it, ronaviruses, uh, it, it does, you don't, it's kind of casual contact and in, in water when they're shedding the pathogen, it just floats around, the, the virus floats around and, and can infect another amphibian. So it, we would not want uh, something so the equivalent in a human population would be Ebola that infects the upper respiratory system like coronavirus and if coronavirus was hemorrhagic you know you know we would have a 50 you know 70 percent death rate um, so just to make kind of some connections to kind of get at the point of that's what amphibians are dealing with when coronavirus uh, gets into a system um, and, and again, just I also want to reiterate, it's not all, some amphibians have greater immunity than others, um, but some species are super susceptible and don't mount an immune response at all, or, or a very small immune response. I'd like to walk, I'd like you to walk us through a mass die-off event, and why don't we start with, with the beginning in terms of 
what what initiates that, how it spreads through a larger community of, of, of frogs or other amphibians, and then how it finally resolves at the end. Can you kind of walk us through that from beginning to end? Yeah, sure. So, again, some of this is still being worked out through research. Um, and I've kind of given you a few scenarios before about how, you know, you have different different species that are susceptible uh, and, and they could shed the pathogen into the water to more susceptible species. But let's just pick a species because um, we do have some pretty good research with, um, for example, wood frogs and with uh, tiger salamanders that uh, have demonstrated the adults bringing it back. So these are, you know, um, obviously the, these were at one point, these were larvae that uh, either escaped the outbreak or there was no outbreak and they got into and they, they, they grew up and they became, you know, uh, healthy frogs or salamanders, you know, another, you know, two or three years later. And now they're coming back, you know, down to um, the pond. And the adults, again, um, can, can often live with the pathogen. They have stronger immune responses than the tadpoles. And uh, their exposure could be, you know, during the breeding event, uh, or it might be some other casual exposure that occurs when they're in the, you know, in the terrestrial environment. But let's just say we do have some frogs that come back and they're infected. Well, breeding, number one, um, for most amphibians is a stressful event. Uh, the, 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 you know, the, the females are producing lots and lots and lots of eggs. So they're taking lots of resources to produce those eggs. The, um, uh, the males are coming down. They're trying to defend territories. Uh, they're doing courtship events. They're doing, they're calling. Uh, they, they, if they're a salamander, they may be swimming around a lot, trying to find and do courtship to, to the, the female salamanders. So it's very energetically taxing to an amphibian. In general, when we're burning a lot of our resources and we're not sleeping much, you know, even humans, right, we, we end up, uh, we say that we get stressed. And, and, and that is a physiological response. We produce what are called stress hormones, which reduce our immune system. Okay. And, and so what happens is if they are infected with this virus that doesn't kill them, but then their immune system drops, what happens is the virus starts to increase its replication. They start shedding it more. They become more infectious and they shed more of it into the environment. Um, or, and they can also transmit it easier from individual to individual. So the, you know, next thing that happens is, is, is then the tadpoles get exposed and tadpoles or salamander larvae are, exist at much higher densities than the adult population because, you know, by the time they become adults, a lot of them get eaten, a lot of them die for a variety of reasons. But, uh, you know, the larval population is, is usually a pretty big population. And that's just part of their reproductive strategy. You produce a lot of offspring because a lot are going to die, you know. Um, if you're a wood frog, you may have 10,000 eggs. And, you know, hopefully, you know, you know three or four of them <laughs> will survive all the way to the adult stage. So the um, what happens is when you have all of these, uh, larvae 
in in an aquatic system in a pond system um, they if you get a pathogen that's highly transmissible it really the contact rates between a tadpole and another tadpole they're almost guaranteed within a day you're going to bump into you know we've estimated like a hundred another hundred tadpoles okay well if one of those are infected and it happens to be infected with coronavirus uh, it can easily transmit it to the next and then those two easily transmit to the next, to the next, to the next. And you can imagine this exponential increase in transmission events um, to some point where transmission is saturated, everybody's infected. And as I mentioned with highly susceptible hosts, you can start to see animals start dying anywhere between three and seven days post-infection. So this can happen super, super quick. Um, so the die-offs, start, um, individuals start to die, maybe the first ones that were infected. You can have a big explosion where the majority of the population dies within about a week period, and then you've got a few lingering ones in, in the last few days. So often when we see ronavirus outbreaks in highly susceptible species from, you know, basically the initial infection to, you know, kind of when the outbreak is starting to when it ends is, is often within two weeks. Now, that can occur over a longer period of time for less susceptible species, um, and, uh, and, and uh, the other thing that happens in that process, we're just talking about one species right now, is that we've observed that, um, you know, ronavirus is just like all pathogens. The more you're exposed to, the more virulent it is, the, the, more, the greater likelihood you're going to become infected and ultimately the greater likelihood you're going to die. We call that a dose response, a dose response. And when you have all of these tadpoles dying, um, you have all this virus shed into the environment. So species that normally might not get infected or even become sick, all of a sudden become infected because they're surrounded by so much virus that it overwhelms them. And so what we've often seen, we've seen this in, in Tennessee at, up at Cades Cove where we've seen these die-offs, is, you know, you have this big outbreak that happens with wood frogs and all these uh, wood frogs start dying, but then you all of a sudden see the spotted salamanders dying and the marbled salamanders dying and other tadpole species, toad species uh, dying. So you can have these really amplifying events that create multiple species die-offs. Um, and the, I guess the last point I'll make on that is, you know, how quick could this really, really happen? So we helped uh, diagnose a case of ronavirus that occurred up in Maine. And a biologist is there, a biology professor, pond on his property. He's been monitoring it for, you know, 20 years going out there every year, even going with classes, and they, you know, sample the wood frog population. Everybody's healthy. Nothing's wrong. And then all of a sudden, um, within a matter of three days, every single tadpole is dead. And he had estimated, based on their sampling efforts, that it was over 200,000 animals died. It can be that quick. And it was literally oh, wow, there's a few dead tadpoles to next day. Oh, my gosh, look at them all to next day. Where are the tadpoles? So it can be that fast, which 
also makes it difficult sometimes to detect ronavirus outbreaks. Um, unlike, you know, for example, some of your listeners might be familiar with chytrid fungi, chytrid die-offs usually take weeks or months to, to actually go through a population or a community. Ronaviruses can occur within days or weeks, so it can occur super, super fast. That was actually going to be my next question. I was going to ask you to kind of compare and, I mean, obviously, chytrid and ranavirus are two completely different things. One's a virus, one's a fungus, but they, they seem to share some of the same lethality. But um, aside from the fact that one is, uh, I guess, sort of a, a, extremely lethal in the immediate time frame, whereas one is a, more lethal over a prolonged period of time, can you just run through for the listeners maybe a couple of points that might differentiate the two? Yeah, so chytrid uh, fungi, again, they're a fungus, but they um, attack the skin. So they are a skin pathogen, and they are most uh, lethal to the adult stage, okay? Um, Ronavirus is a virus. They're generally most lethal to the larval stage, although in Europe we've seen several um, species uh, within the adult age class uh, being killed as well. Okay, so uh, rotavirus, as I mentioned before, are, are, are hemorrhagic disease. They have systemic infection in multiple organs. And again, the chytrids are affecting the skin. The two chytrid species, uh, BD, Batrachychytrium dendrobatidis, uh, that species actually thickens the skin, um, results in more and more skin being produced, and, and B cell, Batrachychytrium salamander vorans, which is um, only been detected so far in, in, in Asia and, and in Europe, um, actually creates holes through the skin. So both of the chytrid fun, fungi actually affect skin function, which ex- affects osmoregulation, um, which can uh, uh, mess with the electrolyte balance within the amphibian. And, and generally what happens when that happens is muscle function is affected. It results in paralysis and, and cardiac arrest. Um, and again, going back to rotaviruses, uh, rotaviruses are hemorrhagic disease that just kill a bunch of, 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 of cells within multiple organs to kill them. Uh, to kill the animals, and then you have blood leaking out of the vessels. Um, they both easily transmit. Uh, chytrid, too, uh, really, uh, you can have transmission as quickly as a one-second contact between an infected and uh, a, a susceptible individual can result in transmission. So both of them can really transmit. Both chytrid both and ronaviruses transmit really easily. Uh, environmental persistence, and what I mean by that is how long can these pathogens uh, live outside the host? Um, you know, for rotaviruses, uh, it, it's, well, for both of them, we're talking probably a few days to a couple of weeks, um, depending on the conditions outside the host. Um, Uh, I'll, yeah, okay. Yeah, I'll just, I'll end on that and let you go ahead and ask some more questions. Yeah, no, no, those, those are all good points. I mean, I know that your research nowadays is primarily focused on chytrid and I, I, I want to get into, uh, your role in the, in the B cell task force in a few minutes and some of the issues with, uh, legislation and whatnot. But in terms of what you just said, I mean, what are some of the ecological implications from a mass die-off event? Because to me, 
in in the grand scheme of things, in a very large lake, uh, you know, a hundred thousand tadpoles isn't a tremendous amount of biomass, but in a relatively smaller situation, all those dead tadpoles that are obviously shedding rhinovirus. I mean, what's like what's the ecological implications? Like, what happens to that body of water? Is that just indefinitely contaminated, or does that after a few weeks, is that does the, do the viruses just die off? I mean, what's what's the long term situation for a body of water that amphibians that incurred a mass die off event? Like, what happens in the near future? Yeah, so uh, that's a good question, and what we can see. So we can we can measure the virus in the water. Um, which has been done, and you it really tracks or lags a little bit um, the observations with uh, with your eyes, the dead animals. So um, as individuals become more infected, we can see the concentration of coronavirus increase within the water um, up to a point uh, where you have the peak die off, and then as animals die and they decompose and they are scavenged by insects and things like that. Um, you'll see the, you'll, and, and there's basically no more amphibians, uh, you'll see the, the virus concentrations go down. And, you know, so, um, you know, after uh, those sites uh, will remain infectious and contaminated for a couple of weeks, but after a couple of weeks, if there isn't any other host there, they could pick up the, the pathogen, uh, the pathogen disappears. But we know that it just doesn't disappear Forever. Usually there are some individuals, again, other species that'll keep it around, or maybe some individuals, um, you know, did escape the outbreak. Um, so it still is maintained within the system. That's one of the biggest mysteries is how does it, you know, persist through an entire year to be, because usually when we see these outbreaks, they can be reoccurring within a year, but it's often one big explosion coronaviruses and then there's not much there and then it's you know the following year and often when we see the outbreaks they are when water temperatures are increasing and uh, you know in the temperate regions here of the US so let's just say mid-latitude and all you know kind of Tennessee we're, we're right in the kind of the center of the, the United States when you go north to south um, you know, we'll see outbreaks here starting in, in early, uh, in early May and in, in other states farther north, it'll be a little bit later, but, but we see the big concentration happening generally from our surveillance happening in the early summer months. Um, occasionally we've documented some die-offs in the fall. Uh, we have no idea in the winter because most folks aren't out sampling at that time, but in general, ronaviruses, they replicate faster with warmer temperatures. And so that's when we tend to see, um, you know, the greatest outbreaks kind of occurring is when those water temperatures increase. Now, you can imagine, yeah, 200,000 tadpoles dying, and then subsequent, subsequently if that reoccurs the next year and the next year, uh, which there have, are certainly situations where we have these reoccurring dials at the same sites, then the, the adult population goes down, et cetera. And, and, you know, from an ecology standpoint, there are a lot of ecosystem processes that are affected. Um, so as you can imagine, um, 
you know, uh, tadpoles, uh, they scavenge everything from, you know, plant material to aquatic insects. Um, they digest it and they poop it out into, you know, nice nutrients. Um, they're used by the plants, etc. So they're part of that nutrient nutrient cycling process. The adult amphibians are the same. Adult amphibians are completely insect uh, insectivores, so they're eating, um, uh, you know, uh, mostly, you know, well, flying insects, and they're also eating some beetles and, and things like that, uh, ground crawling insects. So they're really important from the ecosystem process standpoint. Um, a lot of their biomass is, you know, you know, uh, is sequestered, uh, is, is, is carbon, it's organic carbon, and they can obviously be a part of that ecosystem and sequestering carbon. Those are a lot of the, you know, the biological reasons that you'll hear ecologists talk about. But um, I, I really want to impress to your listeners that there are human health benefits of amphibians. And uh, most importantly, um, is probably their ability to control um, insects. So, uh, for example, um, a cricket frog uh, is a small one-and-a-half-inch frog, and it's been estimated that they can eat 5,000 insects in a particular year. Um, and the important aspect of, of frogs uh, and, and salamanders is as the larvae, they're they're, they're eating insects as larvae, tadpoles, most people think that tadpoles just eat um, vegetation, but they're actually omnivores like us, and they will eat um, lots of different insect larvae, including mosquito larvae. They're very effective. They love mosquito larvae. They gobble them down, um, and then uh, if those uh, larvae do hatch, uh, the adults will, be, will eat mosquitoes as well. So where you have amphibians, you have uh, either almost non-existent uh, mosquito populations or very, very minimal mosquito populations. And, and why do we care, you know, as humans? Uh, mosquitoes are the, one of the number one ways that we contract various illnesses, um, what are called vector-borne diseases, is through mosquitoes. So mosquitoes going in and... Um, you know, um, feeding off of, a, of, 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 off of a horse or off of, you know, a deer or something like that, picking up a pathogen, then biting us and transmitting that pathogen. So um, mosquito, low mosquito populations are a good thing. I think everybody's aware of that, and amphibians really can help control those populations. There's also really um, unknown, uh, well, some known and unknown you know, biomedical benefits of amphibians. So one thing with amphibians uh, and some species of amphibians, some salamander species really, really exhibit this, is they have the ability to regenerate their limbs. So there are a lot of folks right now on the biomedical field side that are studying amphibians to learn how to grow limbs or um, learn how to change uh, the signaling of cells that are involved with wounds so they act like stem cells and they can regenerate their limbs. And you can imagine the, you know, the human health implications of that from, uh, you know, helping maybe potentially regrow limbs uh, for amputees or uh, our veterans um, to, you know, growing uh, potentially uh, even having, you know, um, uh, uh, the, the potential to treat different organs and different diseases.
um, associated with, uh, you know, where, where, where um, uh, tissue regeneration needs to occur. Uh, they also, uh, there's been quite a bit of research on uh, amphibians have various um, uh, chemicals they produce um, in their skin. And, and some of those chemicals that they produce are very um, potent painkillers, so analgesics. Um, so it's been documented that, uh, you know, some of the chemicals that are produced by uh, some of the tropical frog species um, will uh, have the potency of, that is, is 30 times the potency of, of morphine. And they don't have addictive effects as some of our, you know, synthetic painkillers that we use that have been associated, for example, with the op opioid crisis. So, um, you know, if we just think, you know, just about humans and our benefits, amphibians are, are useful in that capacity from a biomedical standpoint, from a human health standpoint. And they're a component of the ecosystems, you know, from a biodiversity standpoint. Uh, healthy ecosystems uh, mean uh, for wildlife, mean healthy ecosystems for humans. And, and, and our health uh, is inextricably linked to the health of our environment and the health of animals. And, and um, a term that is becoming used more often to refer to that is called One Health. And we need to begin thinking as a society that, that you know, we have one earth <laughs> and we're here. Our human populations are continuing to grow and we need to learn how to, uh, you know, be able to um, think about uh, taking care of environmental health, animal health, both livestock and wildlife, because those both feed into the health of humans. Sorry, I just started choking out of nowhere. Um, uh, hopefully you don't have ronavirus. I, no, no. I, <laughs> I just picked the worst opportunity to start choking. But um, I'd like to get into some of the regulatory issues and things like that. And I, it's funny because I'm looking at the way I frame my questions here on my outline, and I kind of went about it backwards. But um, why don't we switch the topic to some of the regulatory issues that are facing the the trade and i think we'll go we'll kind of go by piece by piece here through the uh, you know the i mean just so everyone knows obviously i i always send my guests an outline and there's some points that we like to cover hopefully in chronological order and um why don't we frame this around the the trade of of amphibians and why don't we start with some biosecurity protocols that can be used to contain and prevent the transmission of, of ranavirus? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, for your listeners, you know, for those that are, that uh, have amphibians as pets um, and, and I love amphibians and uh, it's really cool to have them in a terrarium and, and, you know, uh, some amphibians are very, very expensive. Um, and it's cool to uh, get different unique species. And, and some of y'all might breed. And so, um, and that is all cool. I, I mean, I, I think that what we need more of is, you know, whether it is hobbyists, just enthusiasts of amphibians or K through 12 teachers is having amphibians in the classroom so that we can teach and learn about them. 
And and one thing about uh, amphibians, as I you know mentioned, is, is they can be expensive. And the last thing we want is for them to get sick. Um, it is nobody you know likes to see uh, their pet die. Um, but also, you know, it's an investment. And uh, so it uh, behooves uh, everyone from the individual, you know, amphibian owner all the way through folks that are breeding amphibians to folks that are uh, trading amphibians uh, to international trade to really think about, you know, how can we reduce the likelihood that ronavirus or chytrid gets into my terrarium um, or gets into my breeding collection. Uh, we were a part of uh, diagnosing a case uh, of a, a very large breeder um, in Canada that ronavirus came through and knocked over $100,000 of inventory out. You know, so, uh, you know, it is in, I think, everybody's interest to try to, you know, um, reduce that potential effect so it doesn't affect the industry. Um, also by reducing the, the potential for these different pathogens to be in trade, um, we reduce the likelihood of, of an accidental spillover occurring to a, a wild population. And, and how might that occur? Um, well, we all know we may not do it ourselves, but we do know that, you know, when we get tired of, you know, amphi uh, of a pet, sometimes we give it away, right? So you may give it away, but... You know, you may do that with a dog. You may take it to a shelter. Um, but with a frog, you know, or a salamander, some people are like, well, I'm just going to go release it um, into the environment. You know, go ahead and let it go back, you know, to the environment. It may be a native species. It may not be a native species. Um, some folks may even think it's a great idea on their trip to the Great Smoky Mountain National Park to release a salamander or a frog into this beautiful you know, biodiverse area because it can go be with its friends. And that's not a good idea because, um, again, when we don't know that our amphibians are, 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 if we don't know that our amphibians are healthy and pathogen-free, we could be releasing an infected animal uh, that could then transmit to a very susceptible uh, host out there and, and result in an outbreak. And, and lo and behold, let's, you know, that could even be a pathogen that isn't even native here to uh, the United States. So, you know, one thing that I think um, we need to begin to think about is, you know, really a healthy trade system uh, that, you know, has industry support, has hobbyist support, has government support, and that, you know, the groups come together and we really work on, on coming together with the best strategies to do that. I think that that's a great thing. That's what I've been a big proponent is, uh, excuse me, what I've been a big proponent of is sort of bridging that gap between all the different aspects of this equation. Because you've got people who, I mean, I myself, I'm a, I'm a dog frog hobbyist. That's my passion. That's well, one of my passions. The other one's podcasting. But um, it's something that I enjoy, something that I'm very passionate about, something that I'm very enthusiastic about. And just like you said, the last thing I would want would be for my animals, my collection, whatever you want to call it, to be completely wiped out by a, a pathogen. I mean, I even the, the property that I work at is has a lot of woods to it. We have a pond on the grounds. 
And someone asked me, he said, oh, he goes, well, why don't you bring home one of the bullfrogs? I said, I don't want that thing in my house. I don't know what it's got. The last thing I want <laughs> right, that is, right. is bringing something in and, and you know, wiping out uh, everything that I've worked so hard at. But um, why, don't, why don't we, uh, I mean, you had given me this table here that I think was really interesting. I mean, just on, on a basic level, just to give people an understanding of how they could just do something so simple as to disinfect an area to prevent this, the spread of things like BD and B-cell and ranavirus. I mean, can you give us kind of a run-through in terms of, of like some effective control methods to preventing transmission just like through, through the use of chemicals or whatnot? Yeah, so there are a lot of good um, and effective disinfectants that are available to kill all three of those pathogens. Um, probably the easiest is household bleach. Okay, and so if you take um, just a, a 4% uh, concentration of household bleach, of, you know, regular strength household bleach, and you dilute it all the way down to 4%, um, you can do the math, uh, you know, of, of what that might mean if, you, if you're, you know, maybe mixing up a, a gallon with a gallon of water. But um, uh, just 4% can kill uh, both uh, ronavirus and, and BD, uh, the very common chytrid fungus uh, that's you know occurs ac around the globe. B sal, the salamander chytrid fungus that we haven't yet detected in the United States, is actually a little more resistant to um, to bleach, and it takes about a 20% concentration of household bleach. So, anyway, it doesn't take a whole lot. Uh, some other common disinfectants that you um, see on the internet: one is uh, Viricon Aquatic. Only a 1% concentration will kill all three of those pathogens. Um, you know, ethanol, like we have in our hand sanitizers, not don't use hand sanitizer, but, you know, we uh, really good hand sanitizer has about 70% uh, ethanol within the hand sanitizer to kill COVID. And, it, and it, it's very effective at killing all three of these as well, 70% ethanol. But uh, you can buy like isopropyl alcohol. If you use any of these, though, importantly, you know, you want to let it kind of sit like within a tank um, for, uh, you know, about a good 10 minutes. And again, you'd want to drain the water out. You'd want to disinfect the tank. Um, you know, this is, you know, again, something I wouldn't recommend doing if you have healthy animals. Just leave it the way it is. But if you have a die-off and you want to make sure you get rid of the pathogen, then make sure uh, you go through with a disinfectant. Um, and I'll just mention that if you do have what you think is a die-off, um, there are diagnostic labs that can help you with that. Um, that uh, you can, for example, I mentioned the Global Ronavirus Consortium. You can go to their website, ronavirus.org, and look at, I think it's under like resources or something, and it has a whole list of diagnostic labs. Um, one is here, University of Tennessee. We 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 can do that for a small fee. But um, um, even if you suspect that you have your, your amphibians die and you don't know what it is, uh, this you know again, as I mentioned, you know four percent bleach, uh, one percent viricon, seventy percent ethanol, um, and let it sit for about ten minutes, and that'll inactivate anything. Then after that, you want to rinse it really good, you know, with uh, just you know with your tap water. Um, just so that there isn't any of that residual chemical, which can be toxic to um, amphibians. Um, but that, that's a way of, you know, really... Uh, so, so the other thing I would also encourage 
your listeners that are hobbyists, and maybe you know a, a lot of y'all already do this, but you should think about having a, a quarantine tank. So if you bring in new animals, you know, you know, bring them in, um, and you know, make sure they appear to be healthy. You know, for a couple weeks or so, you aren't seeing anything weird happening. Now you still don't know; they could be lightly infected with a, with a pathogen that could transmit. Um, and, and, but that is a good way to always have a quarantine tank so that you can at least observe the animal for a couple of weeks before you put it in with your collection. Uh, the only way to really guarantee that you're getting a healthy amphibian is to have some sort of certification system. So we work, uh, are working with the amphibian pet industry to, you know, brainstorm about ideas, but the idea of healthy trade of clean trade uh, is already established through um, through the agricultural trade system, and so um, there are ways that we can we can test to see if if amphibians are um, you know infected with any of these pathogens. It, it's actually a fairly inexpensive test. Um, it's actually fairly uh, easy to do. Uh, there are lots of laboratories that do it, and uh, you can get results. And um, again, it's it's you know, being able to verify as a business or a breeder that, hey, my amphibians are free of these, and um, I'm able to say they are, and I'm able to certify that they are. Now, we don't have a certification system yet. That's what we've been talking about doing. We really need, but hey, it's been certified that these are free. Um, I don't know how many of your listeners would pay an extra, let's say, five bucks or 10 bucks, I don't know, depending on the, the, the frog or the salamander, who knows, but, but you know, how much would you be willing to pay more? Let's say an extra five bucks. I think a lot of people would be willing to do that, uh, you know, in order to ensure you're getting a healthy animal and you don't have to quarantine, et cetera. And, and you know, uh, occasionally uh, a sick frog or salamander may squeeze through, uh, that may okay, that's missed by the diagnostics, but in, in general, you know, the diagnostic tests we're talking about tend to, you know, have pretty good efficacy, meaning that they're often about ninety percent correct. So, it's an interesting model, and I I think that also I I do want to apologize to to you and to everyone else. I should have I should have introduced you a little bit more properly in the beginning, but. You were also you're a former co-chair on the technical advisory committee. Uh, excuse me, the technical advisory committee of the BSAL task force. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that before we get into any more questions? Because I feel like I should have. Uh, <laughs> I apologize, to everyone. I should have mentioned that earlier. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. Um, so the BSAL task force, as I mentioned earlier, BSAL is this newly discovered chytrid fungus that is emerging throughout Europe right now. It's resulting in a really, really, uh, you know, pretty massive declines in the fire salamander population, so salamander, salamandra, but it's also having negative effects on other species of salamanders over there. Um, again, it's believed to be out of uh, Southeast Asia. Um, and it was discovered or first published on in 2013 by 2016, um, the United States, we well, the United States and Canada, and also Mexico, we created what's called the North American B Cell Task Force, recognizing that uh, we have the greatest biodiversity of salamanders in North America and the entire world, um, with uh, the United States 
Uh, Southern Appalachia, I'm sitting right in the middle of that biodiversity hotspot, but also down into Mexico as well. There, um, they have really high species richness uh, as well going down in, into Mexico. So we don't want B-cell to get here. Um, I don't think anybody does. Um, and so that task force was created to uh, really kind of start to to, to uh, you know, get together ideas of how we could potentially um, you know look for BSAL uh, through surveillance efforts. You know, what what if what if we do detect it? We're kind of expecting it's it's probably going to get be here at some point. Uh, if we detect it in trade, what would we do? If we detect it all of a sudden in the Great Smoky Mountains, what would we do? And so, out of that, a variety of working groups were formed that uh, specialize in different areas to, to try to address that question. And uh, part of my role as the, uh, the chair, the co-chair, the former co-chair of that, te- uh, that technical advisory committee was to put together a strategic plan um, of which uh, was or is being published um, as we, we speak and will be available on, on um, the, the B-Cell Task Force website, which is salamanderfungus.org, salamanderfungus.org. And uh, if you go there and look under resources, um, there are, you know, a variety of things that are there, um, but uh, uh, that that strategic plan um, is is one thing that it's kind of a roadmap, you know, what happens if B-cell is detected and, and where should we be going with these different working groups to kind of keep advancing research and surveillance and communication with the public, et cetera. So. I like the word that you used earlier, which was, was management, because here in the U.S., and just for my international listeners who might not be aware, there was a, a large number of species of salamander that were listed as injurious, and if, effectively, for a long time, there was some legal back and forth, but effectively, the trade in salamanders was essentially just shut down. The idea of having a clean trade is in my opinion, is, is very appealing, especially as an alternative to a complete moratorium for a lot of enthusiasts for, for, for a number of reasons. I mean, obviously, there's the um, the hobby aspect of it, but there's also the, the economical aspect of it. I mean, there were people who were making their livings off of uh, breeding and selling salamanders. Can you tell us a little bit more about the the idea of a clean trade system as opposed to a complete ban on any kind of trade in species whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the model really to follow is is one that um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture uses, so USDA for for, for farm animals. And and so really, uh, it's pretty simple. Um, the it, It's what USDA does is they follow recommendations uh, by the um, World Organization for Animal Health. So a lot of y'all are familiar with the World Health Organization. Well, there's a similar one for, for animal health, okay? And they're responsible for looking at pathogens that could be of, of really con- concern to agricultural animals, um, um, also human health, and, and also wildlife. And so we call those pathogens, when they become listed by the World Organization for Animal Health, we call them, they become listed like these are ones of concern, we call them notifiable. 
And so that's kind of the starting list. So you start there. So right now, Ronavirus, uh, BD Kittred, and B, uh, B Sal Kittred are listed as notifiable by the World Organization of Animal Health. That triggers then, okay, these are ones that we should set up a, a healthy trade system for, a clean trade system for. And so there are protocols that are established when they are listed as, when a pathogen is listed as notifiable is this is how you should test for the pathogen. This is how many animals you should test within a shipment, et cetera, et cetera. These are laboratories that can do the testing. Okay. And, um, that, uh, is, and then if you go through the laboratories that are approved and those laboratories can then provide a, um, a verification or a certificate that the animals are, are, are free of the pathogen and they are clean. That certificate comes or accompanies the shipment of amphibians. Okay. Now the cost, uh, associated with that, there is a cost, right? So, um, we may not know it, but when it comes to agricultural animals, the cost is embedded, you know, within the price of your chickens or, or, or whatever that you buy at the store. Um, now, with amphibians that are, for example, pets, uh, you know, having a cost of diagnostic testing on there would increase their price. And really what we need to understand is what would that cost, okay? How much would it cost? And, um, you know, how much would consumers be willing to pay? And so right now we are, uh, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, we have a project that uh, we are working on with the pet industry and um, some of the uh, some of the kind of big businesses within pet industry like Josh's Frogs and Reptiles by Mac. Um, and we're working with them to do uh, surveys um, of consumers and also businesses of various aspects of the industry. How much would consumers be willing to pay, but how much would industry be willing to accept in increases in costs? The industry uh, knows their business, uh, they know their expenses, and so it's really important to generate that type of information um, to, to begin to think about, you know, what's the feasibility of it. And ultimately, uh, once we have that information, um, you know, then we can estimate the cost of what a clean trade program would be. And, and ultimately, you know, how does, you know, USDA ultimately, you know, implement this is that there are ultimately subsidies and, and funds that go into supporting that system. And so, uh, you know, that's a, that's a way when you have those statistics that, you know, there can be really good dialogue with, with, uh, with the government and with industry and with consumers and hobbyists, et cetera, uh, really kind of working together to say, we all want this. Um, so let's work together to solve the problem in a holistic way, in a healthy way, as opposed to just banning animals. And, you know, banning animals may seem reasonable, uh, may seem like a reasonable response, but it's really, you know, you know, taking a hammer to something that might only need uh, a really um, nice detailed, you know, scalpel or, um, you know, some other strategy that, 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 that could help facilitate clean trade. Cause that's really, that's really the key. How, how realistic is a, a clean trade? I mean, is that something that can be like on the horizon? Is this something that 
could feasibly happen, or is this just still more of in the idea phase? Uh, no, I, I think it is extremely feasible. Um, and again, we have the system set up for it to, to do that. Uh, now, th- there are some weird regulatory things in the U.S. that are um, more from kind of the legislative standpoint, the administrative standpoint of government to kind of figure out how that needs to be done. So I've mentioned USDA. Uh, they are in charge of you know, the trade of domesticated animals. Uh, they are not in charge of the trade of wildlife. Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service is in charge of the trade of wildlife, but they're only in charge of the trade of wildlife in the context of, um, you know, endangered species and, 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 and other things. They, they aren't in charge of really looking at uh, the, you know, uh, pathogen surveillance. So it's, we're kind of in this weird regulatory loophole of that U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service doesn't really have the mechanics to do healthy trade. USDA has the mechanics, but they don't do wildlife. So to me, it seems like right there is the fix that needs to occur is some sort of collaboration between U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and USDA to think about how can we come up with a wildlife uh, healthy trade system. And, And it's not just amphibians. You know, this really should occur for other traded wildlife. It makes a lot of sense when you think about it because, you know, my line of thinking has been just like you said, you're dealing with fish and wildlife, you're dealing with, you know, it's it's not thought of in the capacity of being a domestic animal, but if we can have a rabies certificate for a dog, why can't we have a certification that says a salamander is free from chytrid or a frog is free Absolutely. from ranavirus or... That's, I, I mean, when, it is pretty simple. when you say it out loud, it actually sounds extremely simple. And I really don't understand why anyone would be opposed to it. I mean, I, I can't speak for people who are in the, in the business because look, I, I don't make, I don't make my living off of breeding frogs. I, I don't do that. So I don't want to comment on that aspect of it. But as a person who was an enthusiast, as a hobbyist, would I pay more for a frog that I knew was free from any kind of infection? Well, yeah. I mean, we've also been able to kind of circumvent that a lot through captive breeding programs. I mean, I can't remember the last time I bought a wild-caught frog. It's been an eternity. But, I mean, even with, with things like interstate travel, well, if someone could certify that a breeder in, I mean, I live in New York, but let's just say that a breeder in Pennsylvania could certify that, okay, well, his or her, whoever, stock is certified free from chytrid, free from ranavirus, free from whatever pathogens, why should that trade be restricted? I mean, when you think about it, the, the hobby is huge. You, you know what I mean? And if you look at it in the same terms as other domestic animals, like you said, like in terms of cattle or chickens or a- anything else, it really makes perfect sense. And I don't see why anyone would be opposed to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, some of the champions of the larger businesses within uh, the amphibian pet industry are are trying to have some of that dialogue right now and and uh, would even like to see an industry-led uh, healthy trade system. And um, so, again, that's where for, you know, some businesses that that is their livelihood, um, uh, they are, you know, very interested and, and, and looking to see would consumers be willing to pay a little bit more. 
um, if we get our amphibians tested. So some businesses are already doing that and it's already incorporated into some of their prices. And again, I'll just mention, you know, like for example, Josh's Frogs is one of the partners in this project that we're working on and they are routinely testing their amphibians to make sure they're free of ronavirus and chytrid. And, um, you know, so, but, but, you know, if you're a big business and you're, you have a lot of volume, you might be able to absorb that cost. If you're smaller, those profit margins are less and it's more difficult. And again, that's where the, uh, you know, in my opinion, the, the government can uh, come in with subsidies and help facilitate an industry to ensure clean trade, because really this needs to occur ideally, you know, down to the hobbyist level. And, you know, um, if you, for example, Dan, if you had your frogs and you're like, hey, you know, I want to trade or go to a trade show and trade these animals, I want to make sure that they're clean of the pathogen. And uh, it's going to cost me a dollar frog because the government's helping me. Okay. And these are the labs I can send it to. I just, all I do is I swab my frogs. I send them the sample. Boom. I get a certificate back. Boom. I go there and okay, I put an extra dollar or so on, on my price of my frogs or five bucks or something. You know, so it's important that it's not just the big breeders, um, uh, the big industry, you know, can, uh, but it's also that that works down. And, and, and again, it's, it, I think one of the greatest, you know, concerns is everybody's concerned about, you know, government stopping everything and, and regulating. And we just need to start having more dialogue and bringing, uh, you know, different partners, different components of the industry together to, to, to really come up with really good solutions. And um, I'll uh, encourage everybody that's listening to this um, to, if you want to learn more about the work we're doing with industry, uh, we have a, a tiny, what's called a tiny URL that uh, you can link to and you can read about it. And it is um, tiny, tiny, the word tiny, dot U-T-K, University of Tennessee Knoxville dot edu and then forward slash and then pjac p i j a c and pjac is the representative from the uh, from the the pet industry and um, there's even a, a survey I'm, I've mentioned uh, that we're doing surveys we want to hear from consumers we want to hear from hobbyist breeders. Uh, you can, on that website, you can see socioeconomic survey or sociological survey. You click on that and you can, you can go and participate. Please, I encourage everybody to, to do that. Um, there's also opportunities for some free pathogen testing that are on that website too. So um, go ahead and take a look at it. Uh, it's really important that we engage um, everybody involved in the amphibian pet industry and, and you know, try to work uh, uh, forward towards a, um, a, a group of solutions that uh, help sustain the industry but also reduces the risk of pathogen um, outbreaks within industry or, or spillover to wild populations. I always tell people on this show that we never talk about, <laughs> talk about politics, but uh, I don't want to get into politics, but what I do want to ask is, how are legislators reacting? And this is, you don't have to answer this too, in too much detail if you don't want to, but how are, are legislators reacting to this type of model in terms of uh, creating a more manageable system? I mean, is this a situation where those of us who would be in favor of, of a more um, moderated and, and managed trade, 
wanted to reach out to uh, elected officials and something like that. Is this something that they're even aware of, or is this something that would need greater cultivation in terms of um, developing relationships with officials who will be able to turn this into policy? Yeah. So I think in general, um, because of uh, of COVID, um, legislator legislators are are more aware of the risk of kind of wildlife pathogens, how they can move across the globe, um, etc. So calling your representative or senator and talking about you know this opportunity for clean trade is is a good thing now um the right now uh one of the best entities to um to to really help lobby and 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 discuss uh on capitol hill is is pjack is and, and again that acronym pjack stands for the uh, pet industry joint advisory council and again, there's a, a non-government entity that helps represent the pet industry on a variety of issues on Capitol Hill, the amphibian pet industry, uh, preserving it, and also, in sh- you know, trying to think about ways that we could have a healthy trade system is on their radar. Uh, their uh, direct contact associated with amphibian trade is uh, Josh Jones at PJAC, and uh, Josh. Uh, would love to hear from you guys. Um, so it's it, for jo- Josh's contact. I don't think he minds. I give it out as far as his emails, just Josh at pjack.org. And he's the government affairs representative for PJAC. And uh, we've been collaborating with him uh, quite a bit um, for the last, uh, almost the last year on this uh, little pilot project that we're doing to try to get some information. On, on the amphibian pet industry, I think it's definitely an area that needs to be. I mean, just as a as a on a, on a personal note, you know, I mean, we're kind of getting down to the end, but I, I feel like earlier, like when you talked about price point, I mean, like what, what would you pay to know that you're getting something? I mean, look, I have two dogs, man, and it costs me <laughs> it costs me a fortune in vet bills and whatnot. <laughs> I mean, right. bet- between regular shots and medications and food and all that stuff. It's, 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 it's very expensive, but it's an investment in, in other living things. I mean, I can't imagine that the cost of, I mean, again, I know people who pay top dollar for certain, certain, uh, locales of frogs. I mean, some of the Ufaga species can fetch upwards of a couple thousand dollars. So obviously you're going to want yeah. that frog to be as healthy as possible, but I just, I can't imagine why anyone would be averse to it on, on really for any angle whatsoever. Yeah, as long as it's reasonable, right? Um, and really, the, the diagnostic testing, to be honest with you, is reasonable. Now, if you if you want to buy a five dollar frog and it's now ten dollars, I don't, you know, maybe you would not be willing. Um, but you know, most amphibian species, um, we will have some estimates here, not for not too long from now. But you know, you're you're generally paying, you know, thirty bucks. Uh, you know, for an amphibian, and of course, there are the examples of where you're paying hundreds. And um, not only do you want that amphibian healthy, but again, you don't. If you are mixing amphibians within terrariums, um, you don't want to bring in your five-dollar frog <laughs> and have it transmit something to your five-hundred-dollar frog. You know, so um, you know, I I was uh, when I was 
uh, growing up, I spent, uh, I used to work at a pet store and I loved, um, uh, saltwater fish. I mean, that was my thing. I, I super, I mean, I had, you know, saved all my money and I would go spend them on very expensive fish. And then inevitably every single time at some point, uh, it wouldn't be a pH thing, balance thing. It, it was something, uh, that a sick, uh, fish came in and knocked out my, you know, thousand dollars worth of animals. And it was just heartbreaking. And, and so, um, you know, again, it, it's not just restricted to amphibians. Um, you know, there's a lot of interest in, in other aspects of wildlife trade where it just makes sense, um, to, you know, to have a, a, a clean trade system. And, and for some wildlife, as we know, um, they can even, you know, carry zoonotic pathogens. So, again, having a clean trade system to help our own human health is a, is, is a good thing, too. Yeah, those are all great points. I mean, it's all stuff that I could personally get behind. But, um, I mean, we're kind of at the end, but is there anything else that you wanted to add that we didn't touch on so far? Uh, no, not really. Uh, I, I just encourage, uh, yeah, if anybody has any questions about what I was talking about, uh, please don't hesitate to, to reach out to me. Um, I'm at the University of Tennessee. Um, my email is mgray, that's with an A, G-R-A-Y, uh, the number 11 at utk.edu. Uh, you can, my office number is 865-974-2740. Uh, don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, also, go ahead and visit that website about the trade if you're interested um, in in uh, in learning more about or participating in, in, in that survey. And, um, and, and if you need any help with diagnostics, we do do that here at the University of Tennessee. Uh, but there are lots of other laboratories that do it as well. would be happy to point you in a direction no matter where you are in the United States or elsewhere. That's great. Can you give us that website again once more? The, um... Yeah. Um, hold on. Yes, it, it is uh, tiny, so tiny.utk.edu forward slash PJAC, P-I-J-A-C. And uh, that will uh, take you to, um, you know, the website with the trade. It's, uh, the website's called Innovative Solutions to Reduce Disease Risk in Amphibian Trade. Amazing. I love it. I, learn, I love learning new stuff. I always, always love it. Yeah, abso- absolutely. Uh, thank you for the invite. I, I, I appreciate it. It's been uh, a pleasure to... Um, you know, hopefully provide some new information to your listeners. It's It's been a pleasure. I've been looking to do an episode like this for a long time, and I'm really thankful that you could come on and talk to us about this. You bet. All right. Everyone, I want to thank uh, Dr. Matt Gray. He's given us a, a lot to think about. It's been a really enlightening episode, and I, I love doing shows like this. So I hope you guys all learned out, you know, learned something new, and check out those websites. Catch up with you all again soon.